Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. Amen. We are starting tonight our second part of our intro into the Revelation. The reason that we're going to do this, as you will quickly see, is because uh, we have to establish some things uh, so, so that as we travel through, when we get to the verse-by-verse part, uh, as we travel through this, there are some things established so that uh, we will be on the same page. You can turn in, in your Bibles to Revelation, and we will be rev- referencing the Revelation a lot tonight, um, and we will be looking at different things in regard to it, talking about some things that will be coming up, some very important things. But what we're going to do tonight is we're going to set the stage for the verse-by-verse exposition that we will be going through for quite some time. Um, We will be looking at this glorious book until we are done, and I'm excited about it. I I, I tell you what, just, just looking at the introduction and seeing what we have already seen in the first lesson, the hope that we have because of what we're going to see in the Revelation, I'm, I'm excited, and I, I hope you men are as well. But we're going to talk tonight and set the stage with some questions, basic questions that we, we need to, when we approach the Scriptures, ask these types of questions. We are going to examine tonight, as you see on your handout, uh, the who when, what, where, and why, as they pertain to the Revelation. We're going to answer some questions, and we're going to um, let those questions give us a foundation for the rest of this this study as we open the Revelation. I know a lot of you guys, you're ready. Let's just dive in. Uh, we, We don't need to be careless and not establish these things before we dive in. So let's establish... Uh, these questions, let's answer them so that we can be on the same page. So the first one that we see is the, the who, right? The who. who. Who wrote the Revelation? There is some debate. Um, there's not a lot of good debate. Uh, it really comes down to what the early church believed, and I'm going to stick with that. And the early church is pretty much all in agreement in early church history with the fact that this is John, the Apostle of Christ. We see that in Revelation 1.1. He reveals himself. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. We are going to be approaching the who of this book as if this is John, the son of Zebedee. We know that John, the son of Zebedee, is one of Christ's original 12 disciples, one of the 12 apostles, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the three New Testament epistles of John. And we see that, as I've already said, the early church confirmed this. We know this who because it has been confirmed with history. Now, we're going to cover a lot of history tonight. I don't expect you to remember everything that we're going to cover tonight. Write down what you can, 
And if you have any other questions, we will answer your questions as best we can. But we see that John the Apostle, his authorship of the Revelation, and we know when we say that John is the author of Revelation, we know this. We know that he is the author who penned it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's why we can be confident in saying that it is inerrant and infallible Even though John was used by God, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, according to what the Word of God says. And so it is John, the apostle who we believe wrote the revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Not only do I tell you tonight that I believe that, some names in church history that will confirm that. Justin Martyr, many of you are familiar with Justin Martyr. Some of you will be familiar with the other church fathers and historians that we mentioned tonight. Some of you, these are going to be new names. But Justin Martyr, uh, an interesting fact about him, he actually lived in Ephesus at one time. And so when we see in a moment who this letter is actually addressed to, we're going to see one of the churches that this letter was originally addressed to was the church at Ephesus. So it's interesting that Justin Martyr, who lived in Ephesus, Um, he testified as early as 135 A.D. in a work entitled Dialogue with Trypho. This was a dialogue that he had, uh, this this writing, where he was having a conversation with a Jew named Trypho. Now, just a little boring information that you really don't care about, I'll tell you. Anyways, it's debatable whether Trypho was a real person or if the, Trypho was an imaginary person that Justin Martyr was just having this dialogue with and this debate with uh, to prove some points. But, irregardless of whether Trypho was legitimate or not, uh, Justin Martyr left this work for us, like I said, as early as A.D. 135, and he says in this, this uh, dialogue, this work, He says this, there was a certain man with us whose name was John, one of the apostles of Christ. Now I want you to understand why this is so important. This is 135 AD. He's saying that this was an apostle of Christ who prophesied by a revelation that was made to him. He's speaking of the revelation. That those who believed in our Christ would dwell a thousand years in Jerusalem which is a very interesting historical fact that we will dive into later on in our study, and that thereafter, the general and in short, the eternal resurrection and judgment of all men would likewise take place. And so we see that Justin Martyr confirmed very early that John the Apostle was the writer of the Revelation. We find another person who plays a big role in church history as one of the church fathers, and he goes by the name Irenaeus. Or you will hear some say Irenaeus. He is, he is important in looking at this because he is a native, or was a native, uh, he's not anything now, he was a native of Smyrna. We're going to see that another one of the churches that this letter was originally addressed to was Smyrna. So now we have a person from, from Ephesus, Justin Martyr, confirming that it was John the Apostle. We also have now Irenaeus. Irenaeus. He is confirming that John the Apostle wrote the Revelation, and he has that connection 
to Smyrna. And an interesting thing about Irenaeus is this. An interesting thing is that he was a disciple of Polycarp. Now, if you don't know church history, you will see the name Polycarp come up a lot. Because Polycarp was a direct disciple of the Apostle John. Interesting that Irenaeus is a disciple of Polycarp. So if you would, so that you can understand it, you have Jesus who discipled John the Apostle, who then discipled Polycarp, who then discipled Irenaeus. Now here's what Irenaeus says in his writing entitled Against Heresy. He said this, John also, the Lord's disciple, when beholding the sacerdotal and glorious advent of his kingdom, says in the Apocalypse, we're going to learn in, in, when we get to verse 1, that this is the picture of the Apocalypse. So he's saying in his Apocalypse, later in the same writing, he lists John, the disciple of the Lord, again, as he references this Apocalypse. So in Irenaeus writing where he was defending against heresy of his day, he agrees that John the Apostle was the writer of the Apocalypse. So we see Irenaeus and Justin Martyr carrying a whole lot of weight. Remember, Justin Martyr from Ephesus, Irenaeus from Smyrna, Irenaeus, the disciple of Polycarp, who was discipled by John. And so we we look at these things, a lot of times when we get to church history, people's ears turn off, they're not interested. Uh, don't be that person. Because what's that, what that's going to do is it's going to establish how we view this entire letter the whole time that we look at it. So we have some more interesting church history, because I can tell you all are fans, right? Clement of Alexandria, he noted that it was John, the apostle, who had been exiled to Patmos. We know that Revelation 1.9, if you want to look there, he says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So Clement of Alexandria says that John the, the apostle was exiled to Patmos. John's letter here, the Revelation, confirms that, yes, Patmos is where John wrote this. We can do a little math, and we can say, aha, that must mean John the Apostle wrote the Revelation for sure. Moving along in more church history, we have a man by the name of Tertullian. And Tertullian declared in the late second or early third century in his writing that was called against Marcion. This writing called against Marcion was Tertullian defending against the heresy of Marcionism. What Marcionism did, it denied that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were the same God. It was a heresy. And in this defense against that heresy, Tertullian confirms for us as well that it is the Apostle John who wrote the Apocalypse, the Revelation. He says this, that the Apostle John beheld what Ezekiel had knowledge of 
concerning the new Jerusalem in this apocalypse. Revelation 21, verse 2. Flip over there real quick. And it says this, I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Now we know that is the fulfillment of the prophecy that Ezekiel made in the Old Testament of this that was going to happen. And Tertullian said that what Ezekiel had knowledge of, the apostle John got to see it in this vision. So, other early accounts of John's authorship were from, if you've done any church history, a guy named Origen. Uh, he was a third century theologian and philosopher. Hippolytus, in his treatise on Christ and, in the, and the Antichrist, he confirms that it was John the Apostle. Many others throughout church history have confirmed this. Now, I'm going to stop a minute to tell you that doesn't mean that John's authorship has never been questioned. It has been questioned. Um, it's been questioned throughout history. None in the early documentation of church history, the earliest things that we can find, which I've just shared with you. It was later on that people began to question for really not good reason at all. Now, there have really been no valid claims to anyone's authorship other than the Apostle John. Um, so when someone claims that it was another John, there's really no good external evidence. It's only theory. They can't go back to Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria and Tertullian. They can't go back to these early church fathers and church historians and have any kind of external evidence that was recorded at all. They can only speculate. So, right now, many of you are saying, why is this so important? You'll see as we carry on, I assure you. So the first who was who wrote the book of Revelation. When we talk about the who's, the second who, you can write this down, was who the Revelation is about. Who the Revelation is about. And I want to make this very, very, very clear. Um, the Revelation is about Jesus. In fact, it is the Apocalypsus Jesu Christu. It is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That is what it is. I want you to see how important it is that we recognize that the Revelation was about Jesus Christ. In fact, in just the Revelation, I'm going to name for you many titles, many, many titles, and the, the Scripture reference that go along with them to show you how important Jesus is to this Revelation. His names and titles in the book, you can write this down just for fun later, go look it up. We see he is referred to as Jesus Christ. We know this properly when we see Jesus Christ. That's not a first name and a last name. Hopefully you know that now. That is Jesus the Christ. And so he's referred to as Jesus the Christ in Revelation 1.1. He is re referred to in Revelation 1.5 as the faithful witness. Revelation 1.5, again, he is referred to as firstborn from the dead. Now, that doesn't mean he's the first one who was resurrected from the dead, right? 
because we know that people had been resurrected from the dead. He is the firstborn of God among the brethren. Remember this, that he is the firstfruits of our resurrection, right? Because he rose from the, the grave, those of us who are in Christ, we will rise as well. So he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Again, Revelation 1.5. Revelation 1.8 says that he is the Alpha and the Omega. If you know any Greek at all, just the Greek alphabet tells you this. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty, Revelation 1.8. Revelation 1.13, Son of Man. Revelation 1.18, He that lives and was dead. Revelation 2.1, he that holds the seven stars. We'll be talking about those seven stars, and we'll be talking about why it's so important that he holds those seven stars. He who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. Revelation 2.1, he who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Revelation 2.12. Revelation 2.18, son of God. Revelation 2.23, he who searches hearts and minds, and oh, doesn't he? He that holds the seven spirits of God, Revelation 3, verse 1. Revelation 3, 1, again, it says, he that holds the seven stars, Revelation 3, 7, and Revelation 6, 10. He that is holy and true. Who do you think the revelation is about so far? I can assure you of this, no one else gets all these titles in the revelation. Revelation 3, 7, he that holds the key of David. 3, 7 says also, he that opens and no man shuts. Revelation 3, 7, he that shuts and no man opens. What a title. He's the one who opens and no man shuts, and he's also the one that shuts and no man opens. Revelation 3, 14, he is the amen. Revelation 3, 14, again, he is the faithful and true witness. Revelation 3, 14, the ruler of God's creation. Revelation 4.11, for those of you who might not believe in the deity of Christ, he is Lord and God. Revelation 5.5, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Revelation 5.5, he is also the root of David. We see that term again in Revelation 22.16 there at the end. Revelation 5.6, he is a lamb that has been slain. He is referred to as the lamb in Revelation 5.8. 6-1, and 22-1. Just in case you didn't think his sacrifice was that big of a deal. He is the lamb. He is the lamb that was slain, as we know who are believers here today. He was slain to atone for our sin, to take away our iniquity. Revelation 6.10, it refers to him as Sovereign Lord. Revelation 7.14, refers to him as Lord of Lords. Revelation 7.14, it also refers to him as King of Kings. That's why we can boldly say he is the King of Kings and he is the Lord of Lords. Revelation 19.11, he is faithful and true. Revelation 19.11, he is the rider of of the white horse. Man, when that day comes. You're not excited about it, some of you yet, 
But when we get to Revelation 19, if that doesn't fire you up, well, something's wrong with you. Revelation 19, 13, he is the word of God. Interesting, for all the people who think that this might not be the Apostle John writing the Revelation, he is the only one in the New Testament who referred to Jesus as the Logos, the Word. He does it in his Gospel, and he does it again in the Revelation when he refers to Jesus as the Word in Revelation 19, 13. He is again Christ in Revelation 20, verse 4. In case you missed it, he is the Messiah. And it is in those latter parts of the Revelation that Israel is going to see that they crucified the Messiah when he came on his first advent. They are going to recognize him for who he truly is. Revelation 22.13, he is the first and the last. Revelation 22.13, the beginning and the end. Revelation 22.16, he is the offspring of David. Revelation 22.16, he is the bright and morning star. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, The Revelation's purpose is to reveal truth. And we know that Christ is truth. It is to reveal truth, not to obscure it. The purpose of the Revelation is to reveal truth. And we know Jesus says in John 14, 6 about himself, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so we see that Revelation's purpose is not to obscure the truth. For all of you guys, and I, I talked about this a little last week, for all of you guys who think that this is some obscure book that, that you have to somehow decipher some kind of code to even understand it or get your Urim and Thummim glasses on and read it, get your old spy glasses that you ordered from your comic books, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't have to work like that. Here's the thing. He wants us to see that the purpose of the revelation is to reveal the truth of Jesus Christ. When we get through with this study, I promise you this, you will see Jesus Christ and who he is, what he came to do, what he's going to do in the future. You will see him even that much more clearly, and you will fall deeper in love with him by the time it is over. Should that, shouldn't that be the heart of every Christian man to fall deeper in love with Jesus Christ as he reveals himself to his bride? Because in the Revelation, we are going to see what we have never seen with our human eyes. When we study the Revelation, we are going to see the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ when he returns. And how beautiful is that? The unveiled glory of Christ. He is revealing himself in this book so that we can see him for who he really is, what he really came to do. So the Revelation, when we ask the who is the Revelation about question, well, uncontested, it is about Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Would you like me to go through all those titles again while we're here? I'll do it. I can tell you this, just reading the titles of who he is gets me excited. To know that he is everything that the word of God says that he is and even more that I can't even comprehend. So he is the truth that is going to be and is revealed in this wonderful book known as the Revelation. He is the who of the Revelation. Revelation 1.1, let's read it again. It starts out with the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 
Let's talk about the winds. The winds. We've answered the question about the who, who wrote the revelation. Who's the revelation about? The when. When is the date of revelation? I can tell you this. There's a lot of debate that goes on about this. Now, I'm going to establish for you what I believe. And since I, teach, I am teaching this class, we're going to approach it from my date, and I will tell you why I approach it from this date, and why I believe it is the proper date to approach it from. But before I tell you which date I will be approaching the Revelation from, I'm going to tell you that there is also an earlier date, because we're going to see that there are many who think that there is an earlier date of Revelation, that earlier date is around A.D. 68. And they think of it for certain reasons, and I'll tell you those reasons. It's this early date that they choose during the reign of Nero. Because many people in their eschatological thoughts, and, and I don't want to use a big word that you don't understand, eschatological simply referring to the end times. But many people in their eschatological thoughts, they believe that everything that we see in the Revelation, for the most part, already occurred. And that it already occurred in 70 A.D. with the fall of Jerusalem. That's why they have to somehow date this writing before 70 A.D. They also connect a lot of, a lot of it to the reign of Nero, who was a tyrant. There's, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. He was a tyrant who persecuted Christians. But this is the preferred date, that 68 A.D. date, of those who take what is known as the preterist view of the Revelation. Now, what I'm not going to do a whole lot, I'll give you a brief taste tonight. I'm not going to do a whole lot of theories and thoughts behind or angles looking at the Revelation. We're going to look at it. And then in the end, we're going to see what the Holy Spirit teaches us. But the preterists, so that you understand why we have people who think that there is an early date of 68 A.D., well, that preterists believe um, that, that all of this New Testament prophecy that we see has already been fulfilled, that Nero was the Antichrist. And they do, a, in my opinion, a lot of stretching to get there. Um, but that's the stance that they take, that this is not a future prophecy of any kind or anything that's going to occur later on in the end. So their viewpoint of the end times is basically that all the things that you see in Revelation, pretty much, for the most part, have already occurred in the past. Uh, and preterism is in opposition to what we know as futurism. And I'm going to go ahead and just let the cat out of the bag. I'm a futurist. Okay? If that bothers you, guess what? You're not. We can still be friends. Um, I still love you if you still love me. But the preterist uses a 68 AD date so that he doesn't have to be a futurist. He can say that these things already took place before the fall during the Roman conquest of Jerusalem. Uh, he believes, um, you know, basically chapters, you know, as we believe, I'm sorry, basically that chapters 4 through 22 have yet to come. The preterist believes that they already, again, with the exception of a few events, those things have already taken place. And why I say with the exception of a few events, it just depends if you're talking to a partial preterist or a full-blown preterist, because there's degrees of preterism. So, 
Um, and it's the only way for a preterist to actually reconcile his thought is to make this date happen, the writing of the Revelation, before 70 A.D. Um, so know that's where the preterist comes from. One of the, the difficulties of this is that, um, that there's no solid, what we call external proof, of a date during the time of Nero. Um, that, that external proof is all but non-existent. Um, the word preterism, it comes from a Latin word meaning past, and that's why they call themselves preterists, that these things have already taken past, which I find ironic, and this is why I'm not a preterist. Uh, the revelation declares itself. Watch this. What, watch what the revelation declares itself. Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads the words of this, prophecy. Revelation in 1.3 declares that it is a prophecy. Revelation in 22.7 declares again that it is a prophecy. Revelation 22.10, again, it is a prophecy. It is an account of future things that God supernaturally allowed the Apostle John to see. Revelation 22.18 and 19, again, it confirms that it is prophecy. And so to be prophecy of future things, um, I have to say that many of those future things have not been fulfilled. Last I checked, the Antichrist did not come back from the dead, even if he was Nero. When Nero died, he died. The Antichrist that we will see as we study it from a futurist perspective will be someone who actually dies and then comes back to life. Also, return of Christ. I haven't looked yet lately. I've not seen him here, but I long for the day that I do. I long for the day that that white horse comes down with the armies of heaven to conquer because he came, as we know, the first time as a lamb to suffer, but he will come again as a king to conquer. So the preterist chooses a date in 68 AD, and let me not shortchange them. These are good theologians and good scholars, and they have, in their mind, good reasons to choose that. But I tend to go to a later date, and as most, in my opinion, good scholars would, uh, that later date uh, during the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor Domitian, and that was the date of A.D. 96. So I believe that the Revelation was written during the latter part of the reign of Domitian, in A.D. 96. And to me, this seems to be the best option. And I'll tell you the reasons why. There are many reasons, but I'm going to list a few for you. So bear with me and write these down. Uh, the early church historically held to a date during the end of the Domitian era. You've already figured this out about me. I'm going to go back to church history, and I'm going to find out what did the earliest church leaders believe. Those who were closest to Christ and to the apostles in time. What did they believe? Those who had relationships with people who had relationships with John. What did they believe? What did they say? And we can go back in the early church historically held to the later date of A.D. 96 um, during the era of the Roman Emperor Domitian. Now, some of you say, why do we care about the Roman Empire? If you're going to understand the Bible, 
you're going to have to do some history and some study about the Roman culture and the Roman Empire, those people, those players, those emperors who tortured Christians and persecuted Christians to fully understand the things that we're going to read, not only in the Revelation, you can understand the things that we read in the Gospels during the time of Jesus. Because where Jesus was at that time, it was controlled by the Romans. And so we can look into his culture and understand even more about him. We can understand more about the Apostle Paul and the things that he wrote to the church if we understand the culture of Rome. So just because you hear a little history, you hear me say Rome, you hear me say emperor, don't turn your ears off. Learn a little bit. And let me tell you, I don't care how old you are, don't leave here tonight and say, I'm just too, too old to learn these things. Or if you're young, don't leave here tonight and say, I'm too cool to learn these things. Soak up all you can soak up. You're going to get a little out of time. Take notes. Go back, refresh the notes. Look at it in your mind. Go back, double-check me. Research me. It's fun. Find out if I'm just making this stuff up or if I've done my research. And I can assure you this, I've done my research, and that's why I'm going to say that the Revelation was written somewhere in and around the time of 96 A.D. as the early church fathers and the early people in church history declare. I'm going to give you, again, some examples of those. Irenaeus, y'all met him earlier on in this lesson. He states this plainly. He says, the apocalyptic vision, the revelation which we know it as, was seen not very long ago, almost in our own generation. Watch what he says here. At the close of the reign of Domitian. He says this again in his writing entitled Against Heresy. Again, he is a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John. You guys have all played the telephone game when you were kids, right? And you would go, and somebody would whisper something in someone's ear. They would whisper it to the next person, the next person, the next person, and get all the way around the room. And when he got all the way around the room, it was different, way different than the first person or the second person or the third person has said. So what we've done here is we've gone all the way almost back to the beginning of the telephone game. And we're looking here at someone who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who is saying that the date of the revelation was at the close of the reign of Domitian. Domitian died in A.D. 96. So somewhere during the close of his reign is where Irenaeus says plainly in this writing, that it was written somewhere around the close of Domitian's reign. Next we have, again, another familiar name, Clement of Alexandria. He says that John returned from the Isle of Patmos. John left the Isle of Patmos, and after the tyrant was dead. He wrote this in a, in a writing entitled, Who is the Rich Man? He was confirming that John left the Isle of of Patmos. Why is that important? Because Eusebius, who is the church historian, he says this. And in fact, he is known as the father of church history. He says this. He identifies the tyrant as Domitian. You can look this up in the writing of Eusebius in Ecclesiastical History 3.23 is the reference for that. You can look it up and find out that that's 
what he declared. Also, other early writers and theologians, again, Origen, Victorinus, and Jerome. Jerome, pretty big name in church history, if you know anything about church history. Um, Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century, and very important in church history. He confirms as well that the Revelation was written during the time of Domitian. I'm putting the Revelation at the later date, which would have been somewhere around 96 A.D. Some other reasons why I choose the late date and why we will be looking at it from a late date perspective is the persecution of Christians. The persecution of Christians is important because we can use that as a timeline. We know this about Nero. If you'll study the history of Rome and the history of Nero, Nero persecuted Christians. However, his persecution of the church was restricted to Rome. Nero wasn't going out all over the countryside and all the provinces of of Rome and persecuting Christians. However, historically, we know this, Domitian was. Domitian persecuted Christians throughout the empire. Domitian actually executed people in his own family who became Christians. So we see just by the basic historical facts and account of Christian persecution, it it leads me to lean more toward the time of Domitian because Domitian and his persecution spread beyond Rome. And we see that these letters that are addressed to the church by the Apostle John They were speaking about future persecution that the church was facing or was going to face. We'll get to those letters when we get to those letters, and we will break them down as best we can. But just know this. If the persecution had spread beyond Rome, we can go back and we can look at a timeline and say that's not consistent with Nero. That seems more consistent historically with Domitian. We also see this. The seven churches that this letter was originally addressed to, um, these seven churches, many of them are in a declining and even dead state by the time the Revelation was written. Paul helped start some of these churches, if we do a little Pauline history for a second. And Pauline, uh, the Pauline history tells us that Paul would have helped start many of these churches in the mid-60s A.D., When we read the Revelation and we get to the first church that is mentioned, which is Ephesus, we find something interesting about the church at Ephesus. They lost their first love. They had fallen out of love with Christ. Now, what's interesting about that is that this just doesn't happen overnight. So if we take an early date and we say that this happened in 68 AD, it seems rather quick that they fell out of love with Christ and just a time span of a couple of years. Now, when we take the later date, A.D. 96, it's almost a full generation away from the beginning of the church at Ephesus. And we know this to be true, as we can see in our country. Can't we see that very clearly now? It only takes but a generation to fall completely away from God. So I take that Latter date in that situation, again, looking at the declining of those seven churches and saying that 
If Laodicea has already declined to a point where they're neither hot nor cold but lukewarm, and there had to be a greater span of time take place than just a year or two. If we take the early date, it could only be a year or two. If we take the later date, it's nearly 30 years or so. So we look at that Laodicea being that example um, that we look at, again, their lukewarmness. But something also interesting about Laodicea, if you do some history and some study on that, you'll find out this, that in 60 AD, Laodicea experienced a massive earthquake. A massive earthquake that it would have taken them decades to rebuild. Now in Revelation 3.17, John says to the Laodicean church that you have acquired wealth and riches and you're lacking nothing. That would have been impossible if they faced a devastating earthquake in just a few years to be back to a condition of rich and wealthy and lacking nothing. But we can fast forward three decades, and here we are, and we can say that's definitely a possibility. And so we look at Laodicea as another historical example of why I view the latter date as the date that the Revelation was actually written. Also, we can't not mention Smyrna. I, I told you, that Smyrna is one of those seven churches as well. And this church was not founded until after Paul's death. Interesting. Smyrna was not founded until after Paul's death. Paul died in 67 AD on the Ostian Way, west of Rome, where he was beheaded for his faith in Christ. And because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel, it finally caught up with him. That was in 67 AD. When Smyrna would have been addressed, if we take the early date, would have just been less than a year after the death of the Apostle Paul. We know this, that Smyrna wasn't even, a found, wasn't even founded until after Paul died. We know that to be a historical fact. So this church of Smyrna was likely um, not founded we know until after, Christ, uh, after Paul's death, but it was likely founded between the early date and what I call the later date, which is A.D. 96. And so it would make sense that since John addresses Smyrna, that Smyrna would have has, had to have existed and been established because it would have not been firmly established, I guarantee you, enough in a year for it to be one of the seven major churches of the area of Asia Minor that he addresses. So, I know, right? History. Why does this all matter? Because right now you got information overload and you're going, man, does all this stuff really matter? Yes, it really matters. It matters because this is important to our study um, because it's based on the hard evidence. The hard evidence that the date that some think prior to 70 A.D. is impossible and if a date prior to 70 A.D. is impossible, you can't take a preterist view or even a partial preterist view to the Revelation. You must take a futurist view. And I believe this. As we look at this book verse by verse, and don't play games with our presuppositions. We're going into it with, I'm already this or I'm already that. Let's just read it. 
You're going to have to, based on historical evidence, when we get to the Word of God and we're looking at it verse by verse, you're going to have to say, okay, I have to take a futurist approach to the book of Revelation. Now, I know this. There might be some who argue with that. You won't argue with me about that. Right? You, you, you can come up to me and you can say, I'm a preterist and you're not going to talk me out of it. And I'm going to say, well, I'm a futurist and I wouldn't try. Love you. And we'll hug. Might even exchange a holy kiss. No, not really. But why does this matter? Because it establishes how we have to, in our attempt to understand Revelation, how do we have to approach this book? So, that is the when. Right? Here's the what. Number three. Y'all are doing good. Just so you know, these will go a little faster. The what. What is the revelation? Well, according to the revelation, Revelation 1, 1 through 3, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God. What is the revelation? It's a prophetic vision. We know that. It says it. It was given to John. How was it given? By God. Very important. Please don't miss that when we read verses 1 through 3. It was given by God. It was given by God to Christ, to an angel, to John. So we see that it was given by God. Remember, as we are going through this, this is a gift from God. It's not something for you to be afraid of. It is a gift from God. It was given by an angel. You say, man, that's crazy. Not when you understand that God is in control sovereignly over even all of the angelic beings, both those who are his and those who have fallen with Satan, he's in control of everything. And it's given, we know, to John, the last living apostle of Christ. Why is that important? Because John was the last one on this earth who had apostolic authority. He was the last one on earth who could receive a vision like this. Everybody listening? This is the last vision and revelation from God. Right? If you think you got one, you're wrong. This is it. That's how heresies and false teachings and the whole charismatic movement have come about. Because someone who was not in the position of the last living apostle has somehow started receiving all these new visions. Let me help you. There are no new revelations. It's contained here. Right? Hebrews chapter 1, what does it tell us? In the past, God spoke in various ways. But in these last days, He's spoken through His Son. This is the revelation of His Son. This is the last revelation. In fact, this revelation actually warns against anyone who would add any other revelation to it. Please pay attention to that. You ought to be very, very, very cautious when you're around people who say, God gave me a revelation and I want to tell you what God told me to tell you. <laughs> um, no thanks. I'm not, I, I'm not interested and I'm not buying. Have a good day. 
The what? It is a prophetic vision given by God through Jesus Christ to an angel, to the last living apostle of Jesus Christ, who is John. It is also, when we talk about the what? A letter. It is a literal letter. It was captured in writing by John. How do I know this? John, verse 4. To the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne. He is writing, he, he even says, this is John, I'm writing to the seven churches. He captured all that the Lord had given him in writing, so that he could then send it to the seven churches. Revelation 1, verse 10, I, John, that's 9, we'll read it too. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient, and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, lots of debate about what that means. I believe this. He was there on a Sunday, the Lord's day, the day that he resurrected from the dead. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, watch this, God tells him to write it down. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. It wasn't John, just on a whim, who said, I think I'm going to write a letter to these seven churches. He was there on the Lord's day in the Spirit. That tells me this, he was praying, because we are to pray in the Spirit. Seeking the Lord and worshiping. And when that was transpiring, God then sends him this message to get out a scroll, get out your pen, and you write these things down, which I'm going to show you, and you send them. Where was he going to send them? Well, they were addressed specifically to seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, you can go look at your here and then Bible apps, and you will find out that Asia Minor, the seven churches, were all in what we know as modern-day Turkey. These churches included Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Those are the seven churches that John originally addressed this letter to. So, we talk about the what? It was a prophetic vision. It was a literal letter, a literal letter which contained that prophetic vision that he received from an angel, from Christ, by God the Father. He wrote this down as he was instructed and he sent it to seven literal churches. You're going to hear me say the word literal lots of times because the best way to interpret Scripture is a literal interpretation. Now, will there be things in the Revelation that are symbolic? Yes. And there will be in the context of those symbolic things something that lets you know we're talking about the symbolic now. Where many people make error in studying the Revelation... Many of the people who take the preterist approach or partial preterist approach, they make this error. They try to symbolize things that are literal. It makes very clear what is symbolistic and what is literal. So, we've seen the what. Let's look at the where. Where was it written? Revelation 1.9. We already have seen that. We'll look at it again just to give you a little history. In case you want to go on vacation here, you actually can. Revelation 1.9 tells us that it was written on the Isle of Patmos, or the island of Patmos. And this is a small, rocky island 
uh, that is located in the Aegean Sea, uh, about 50 miles off the coast of Ephesus, um, which belonged to the Roman Empire. And as we look at that later date that I said we will be taking, we come to the conclusion, as the early church fathers did, Domitian exiled John to this island. This was actually after an attempt to take John's life, history says, by, by boiling him, but he survived. It wasn't time for him to go yet. So if you've ever thought that you've had it bad in your Christian life because your co-workers didn't like you, no one has put you in a kettle yet and tried to boil you, then exiled you to an island uh, in the middle of nowhere. But John was there. That's where this was written. Uh, this is where John um, went and was sentenced to simply for preaching the gospel, as he says there, that it was because of Christ and because of the Word of God. <clears throat> That's why. There was no other reason. He committed no other crime. His crime was the gospel. And we think, oh, we live in a free country and everything's great and we're never going to get exiled or get in trouble for preaching the gospel. Just you wait and see. Um, things are getting closer and closer and closer. Before you know it, preaching the gospel will be hate speech and we will be fined or imprisoned for it. Uh, where was it sent? Again, uh, to the original, the, it was originally sent to those seven churches of Asia Minor that we've already mentioned. But here's the amazing thing. Eventually, it circulated to all of the Christian churches, Christian churches abroad. You say, well, prove it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. I have it in my hand. Isn't it amazing how God preserves his word throughout history? He circulates his word and he gets his word where he wants his word to go. And try as people may. Do you realize that people for generation after generation after generation have tried to destroy the Word of God. And they cannot destroy the Word of God. You know why? Because the Word of God tells us it can't be destroyed. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of God stands forever. So there's the wares. Eventually got to us. And I promise you this, when we get to chapter 2, we're going to be, I mean, 22 at the end, we are going to be so excited at that time and thankful to our sovereign God that he preserved his word so that it could get to us, so that we could read it in these last days. So let's look at the why, and then we're done. Why? What's the purpose of this? What was the purpose or purposes of the revelation? I'm going to write these down. We're going to see all of these. Purpose number one, to reveal Jesus Christ as the only hope for sinful mankind. Jesus Christ is the only hope for sinful mankind. We're going to see this in the Revelation. All who are not in Christ will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity where they will experience the wrath of God forever. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that Jesus bore the wrath for me on the cross. When we get to that part of the Revelation, we should rejoice and thank God for His grace and His mercy because He didn't have to save any of us. Because I, I can assure you of this, me being the worst, we in this room are, are all scoundrels who deserve judgment. We're going to see that it is in Jesus Christ who is revealed in the revelation that hope for sinful man is revealed. Secondly, the why. Why the revelation? To bring hope for the persecuted church in John's day and in our day. Did you know this? Not everybody has it like we have it. 
Right now, in some countries, if they're meeting tonight, they're meeting and no one's allowed to tell anyone else about it, and they have to do it underground. And if they're caught, it's jail or it's death. When we look at the revelation, it brings hope to the persecuted church. Because we know this, no matter what comes about, suffering, pain, persecution, torture, imprisonment, we, because of Jesus Christ, will win in the end because He wins. He wins. People want to know, man, is the world ever going to get any better? Yes. When He wins. And He's coming back. He's going to win. That's why we long for His appearing. Brings hope to the persecuted church, not only in John's day, but even in today. The third why was to bring hope for Israel's restoration and an earthly kingdom with the Messiah who God promised. For all the people who want to be replacement theologians who said Israel missed their day and the story's over. You're wrong. You're incorrect. We're going to see that after chapter 4, from 4 to 22, we're going to see a whole lot of Israel, not, a, not, not any of the church on this earth. We'll explain as to why. But we are going to see that Israel is going to be restored. Will all people who are descendants from Israel be saved? No, only those who trust in Christ. Did you know this? None before Christ who were Israel will be saved unless they are saved through Christ. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that anyone is ever saved. But we're going to see that when we study the revelation, we see hope for the future of Israel. Why is that so important? Because we see God's faithfulness to adulterous Israel. What does that do for us? It reminds us of his faithfulness to the adulterous Gentiles, to the wicked, sinful Gentiles. And when we see his faithfulness to Israel, it assures us of his faithfulness to us, his beloved children in Christ as well. So to bring hope and restoration as promised to Israel. Why? Because he made a covenant and a promise with Abraham. And that covenant was not bilateral. That was a unilateral covenant. That means God made the covenant. If you remember studying about Abraham, God himself walked through the middle of the sacrifice. Where the tradition was that Abraham and God would have both walked through the middle of that sacrifice, signifying a bilateral covenant. It was not a bilateral covenant. God did not let Abraham walk through the middle of the sacrifice God put Abraham asleep so that he couldn't, and he walked through the middle of the sacrifice so that it would be a unilateral covenant so that it would never fail. So Israel has their future restoration. So, moving on to the why. The fourth why is to bring hope for repentant sinners. Hope for repentant sinners. You study the, the book of Revelation in a sinful state of unredemption, 
It ought to shake you to the core and cause you to fall on your face and cry out to Jesus to save you. So my prayer is this. Any of you who have infiltrated into this men's Bible study under the radar and you're not truly a believer, I hope that you see there is hope for repentant sinners as we study Revelation and that you cry out to Him in repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ so that you can be saved. Number five, in the wise, to bring hope for a renewed creation. You know this, when Adam fell, the whole earth fell with him. Try as they may, the liberal environmentalists will never ever fix this world. God is going to recreate it. He's going to recreate it back to its perfect state where he, as we've already mentioned in our intro, created it and looked and said, it is very good. When God says something is very good, when a perfect holy God says very good, it's perfect. He's going to restore it back to the state of very good. So it brings hope for renewed creation. Next, it is to warn unbelieving sinners of the coming judgment. For all of the liberal theologians who don't want to touch the revelation because it has so much judgment in it, shame on you. Isn't it sad that we live in a time that even in the church we are denying that there will be a judgment? There will be a judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. There will be a great white throne judgment. And all who are not in Christ will spend an eternity underneath the wrath of God, experiencing God's hand of wrath for all eternity. You say, that's harsh. It's not harsh. It's exactly what sinful man deserves. It's what I deserve. And if it weren't for the grace of Jesus Christ, it's what I would get. That's why when we look at the revelation, it is to warn the unbelieving sinners, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Why should I repent? They ask that question to me all the time. Why should I repent? You should repent because there's going to come a day where unrepentant sinners stand before God and they are judged for their sin and they are cast into the lake of fire. Oh, you really believe that? Show me. And I'll open right up to the revelation and and show them. See, right here. Right here. Why? The revelation. To warn unbelieving sinners of the coming judgment. Isn't it sad that when we Preaching the revelation these days, all we do is dress it up with a lot of theory and hoopla so we can ooh and ah and picture blue jeans falling on the ground and people just disappearing from your Tim LaHaye series that is not consistent with biblical truth at all. I would recommend this. Stop reading the books and stop watching the videos. They're only going to mess you up in seeing the literal truth of the purpose of the revelation. To warn those unbelieving sinners of the coming judgment. And lastly, to bring assurance of eternal life for all who believe. Guess what we get to see at the end of the revelation? We get to see God once again make his dwelling with redeemed mankind. After all of the unbelieving sinners are sentenced to an eternity in hell, all of the redeemed will enjoy fellowship with God in paradise as He intended it forever. How do we know this? We know this because of the glorious testimony in 
the revelation. Those are the whys. So in our study tonight, we've looked at the who, when, what, where, and whys of the revelation. I hope this. I hope you've taken notes. I hope you did the best you can to take some notes. If you want mine, I'll give them to you. This is not just needless information. This is not just historical stuff that doesn't matter. These principles will allow us to properly understand this magnificent book as we begin our study verse by verse through what God wants us to see. He wants us to see this. Hasn't Satan been crafty and scaring many of you to not even open up? I can't open the Revelation because my grandma said it's scary. It is for the unbeliever. For the believer, it's exciting. It's encouraging. It's empowering. Right? Everybody in our society wants to talk about being empowered. You want to be empowered? You won't be empowered like the world defines it. You'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit to persevere and to keep on keeping on. You read the Revelation. You'll be empowered. You'll be empowered in the midst of any suffering and any trial that you face because you realize at the end of those light and momentary afflictions, you will for all eternity dwell in the unadulterated glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these men of God in the past who we've referenced tonight who wrote down these things that confirm your truths. God, we thank you for the accuracy of your word. It's perfect and it's infallible. God, I pray as we study it that you would show us what you want us to see, the truths that you want to make clear to us. But Lord, I pray most of all that we see Christ. We see Christ more clearly when we're done with this and that we long for him more earnestly. That we would really say with confidence, even so, come Lord Jesus. Make things right. Your will be done. God, I thank you for these men. Thank you for their lives, their devotion to study the Word of God, their devotion to you as their Savior. Lord, may it not be just on a Thursday night or on a Sunday morning. God, I pray that you raise up a mighty, group of warriors for your name and for your gospel, that you raise them up from this group as these men learn more about you. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory for it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's Word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship Campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.